It is Friday morning, August 2nd. Welcome to Business Casual, everyone. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Litwin. I'm the other of your hosts, Tyler Kern. The voice of B2B and the podfather? I'm not sure about that. You're still not decided. I'm still on the fence. Okay, well, I'll just keep throwing out podfather and soundbite surgeon until you decide to choose. I do like soundbite surgeon. It sounds <laughs> very precise. Why do you get two names? I only get one. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Yours is awesome. yeah. <laughs> well, everyone, hello. Welcome to Business Casual. This is episode two, and we're super hyped for our show today. We've got plenty of good content. We're going to be exploring stuff from ed tech to retail to esports to really just business in general. We've got so much juicy content. I'm excited. Tyler, are you excited? I'm very excited. I'm very excited as we hit this Friday morning. As you wake up this morning, stocks are down. They uh, closed yesterday. The Dow closed down 280 points, nearly 281 points. The Nasdaq closed down 64 points. So that is how you start your Friday morning. It's August 2nd, Daniel. You know what happened on August 2nd in 2007? Please fill me in. Fisher-Price had to recall um, their licensed character toys due to lead poisoning (laughs) hazards. Now, surface paints on the toys could have contained excessive levels of lead, and lead is obviously toxic if ingested by young children. Really? So, uh, they were on a lot of, like, Sesame Street toys. Like, a bunch of the Elmo toys were covered in uh, this lead paint. Now, they were caused by a contract manufacturer in China using a non-approved paint pigment containing lead, Mattel said, uh, that following Wednesday. So... Wow. It was a big time back in 2007. Yeah. You know, I feel bad for Elmo. Um, Elmo had to be recalled. You know what? This is a perfect time to whip out my Elmo voice. Wow, that is impressive. (laughs) Welcome to Business Casual. Okay, and that's enough of that because everyone is going to be scared and run away. Just marked that part in the audio because we're going to cut that and bring that back. (laughs) But yeah, you know, it's uh, it's crazy when you see stuff like that because obviously kids are going to put half or more of these toys into their mouth, so you don't want them eating lead. Um, And it's pretty crazy that you can have a manufacturer get away with that, and it hit stores before a retailer even notices. Well, you Um, wonder how that affected Mattel and what they did later on as far as quality control, right? Right. Like, if they have a manufacturer that's using this uh, non-sanctioned paint, you know, that (laughs) that contains lead in one of their factories in China, you wonder how they crack down after that to kind of maybe have a better control over their own supply chain. Very true, man. Very true. All right, so we're going to kick off our show with our first big segment here. We're going to be doing another segment of American Made, which is our conversational corner on the effect of American policy on American business. So our topic this time around is a look at the minimum wage, Um, basically raising it to $15 an hour and what that effect could be on small businesses. Um, Why are we talking about this? Uh, Well, from a policy perspective, in mid-July, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill to raise the minimum wage to $15 by 2025. Right. I also found an op-ed specifically on this minimum wage increase and the effect on small businesses and the role of small businesses. So I was just kind of inspired to throw this together. So... Again, in mid-July, House of Reps passed a bill to raise the minimum wage to 15 by 2025, which would then index further hikes to medium, uh, median wage growth mm-hmm. and would phase out lower minimum wages for tipped workers. 
So overall wages would increase. Okay. Um, and it's a complex issue. It really deserves like a 30-minute conversation with expert opinions, but we're going to try to give you all the meat of the conversation. So how do the people feel about this? Right. A recent Hill-Harris X poll found more than half of registered voters support a $15 minimum wage. A more recent Pew Research poll found two-thirds of American adults in general are in favor of a $15 minimum wage. Mm -hmm. So there is a plurality or a majority of people that like this. It's a clearly popular position. Economists, however, their opinions vary dramatically in general. Obviously, economists are all over the spectrum, but especially on how this minimum wage increase will affect businesses, it's a really varied uh, spectrum of opinions. So some are totally for it. There's a dedicated page on the Economic Policy Institute website that I think all of y'all should check out, and it has a running list of economists from across the country that sign on to support this recent House bill. What they're arguing is that this will lift wages of almost 40 million low-wage workers, and the vast majority of the benefiting workers will be adults in working families who work at least 20 hours a week and need this income to survive, to make it. What are their thoughts on the overall economic effect? They think lower wage workers will spend a good portion of their additional earnings in general, that this is just a trend among lower wage earners. They spend more. They don't save as much. Right. So what does this mean? A higher minimum wage will stimulate consumer demand, and that will lead to, in turn, job growth. So they're seeing a positive long-term effect. And that even if aggregate work hours decrease because of the hike, that the pay boost could still have plenty of workers break even if not come out ahead. Though, this is something all economists do agree on, some jobs would disappear. Yeah. You will see jobs probably go away. Where they differ is how drastic that would be. Um, but the economists that are for this, um, and there are a few at the University of California, Berkeley, that released a study recently, they said there's no evidence that there is a substantial uh, change in unemployment because of a wage hike as high as 15 by 2024, 2025. So that's the pro side. Now we uh, have other economists that disagree and they disagree hard. There are many studies, including a March 2019 study from the Employment Policies Institute that came back with pretty stark results saying, um, well, first, the economists measured in this poll were primarily focused on labor. They were academically employed, uh, so they work for a university, and they've worked in econ for over 20 years. So we have some of the more tried and true economists speaking out against this raise. They think that the minimum wage should be less than 15%. 88% right. of them think that. 74% think that it, it shouldn't be 15 at all, not even close. They oppose raising it. Uh, why? One of their points is that they think higher minimum wage will make employers ignore the least skilled employees. So they think it might actually have the opposite effect hmm. of helping lower wage workers okay. because $15 an hour, employers will want to um, hire people with more skill or more experience because now these supposed entry-level positions have a higher benchmark. And they also think because of this, poverty might actually go up and that it would lead to decreases in employments, not just for adults, but for youth and just it would decrease the number of jobs available. Okay, that's what economists think. What about right. businesses and business owners? This is what I'm curious about. Yeah, specifically small businesses. Opinions are also kind of varied. Uh, there was an independent survey of 500 small business owners across the U.S., and they found that though a high minimum wage would cut their bottom line, 
and would create some strain on profits and in turn kind of restrict them from hiring more people. About a third, a solid third of small businesses said that in the long run, an increase in income will benefit their employees and their companies. Hmm. Why? They think it would increase retention, it would boost productivity, and in turn reduce turnover and recruitment costs, which especially for small businesses can be... um, really painful costs. Yeah. Um, business owners in states like Washington, New York, in Washington, D.C., they agree with this. Um, the op-ed that originally sparked me wanting to do this segment was written by Alfredo Ortiz. He's the president and CEO of the Job Creators Network, and his opinion was a little more dissenting. He said he doesn't think a one-size-fits-all wage is the best way to address the wage gap in poverty. And he thinks it should instead be regional and should be more in accordance with the cost of living. Yeah. So final thoughts on this. Um, You know, economics is a lot of theory Mm -hmm. for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. And so looking at what economists think, I think you got to take all of them with a grain of salt because naturally their opinions are going to vary on the spectrum and you're going to see a lot of people supporting both camps here. Um, But, you know, we've seen businesses survive and thrive with this boost in other states. We'll look to Seattle, for example, in Washington. Uh, They have a $16 minimum wage for large large employers, excuse me, and $15 for everyone else. And then if you provide a certain level of quality medical benefits or employee tips, you could dip that down to $12 an hour. Um, A lot of people were saying this was going to destroy Seattle's small restaurant or just restaurant industry in general. Sure. Um, A lot of Seattle restaurateurs threatened to leave the city because of this hike. Mm -hmm. Well, the hike went through and no one ended up really leaving. Uh, Instead, uh, I mean, a lot of policymakers are saying that you're seeing dozens of new restaurants open monthly. So interesting. Seattle's one use case. It's a microcosm. You can't apply it to the rest of the country per se, but it's interesting to see that when it does get implemented, it seems like the market can adapt. And even McDonald's, now McDonald's is not a small business, but mm-hmm. McDonald's increased their minimum wage and they invested in employee education. They saw higher employee retention and increase in productivity. Really, I, I think the main issue with this is that it is a layered issue. And you can't just raise the minimum wage without also addressing other things that affect the small business owner or the the worker in general. Right. I mean, I think if we're talking what is going to keep jobs here, um, if a hike in the minimum wage might reduce some of those jobs, well, what would help counteract this? More American-made manufacturing, mm-hmm. finding ways to increase trade within the United States and I mean keep trade here you know not outsource our labor to uh, lower wage countries it's it's kind of the stacked issue that you can't address alone I think oftentimes it gets looked at in a bubble um, and I think if we really want to address how this would affect the worker we need to build on it with other issues as well I think that's a good point uh, I think that there is certainly a case to be made that oh hey you improve the quality of life for somebody if you raise the amount of money they make right I think there's also an argument to be made that it's not the government's business to tell a business whether you know what they should pay their employees right that the market should be able to uh, decide that so I think there's good arguments on both sides um, and we'll see kind of where lawmakers and where businesses fall on it. Yeah. I mean, really, with this bill now, we're just waiting to see what the Senate's going to do with it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think it's just going to get striked down, or if it makes it to the president, he might veto it. So we'll see. The, uh, this conversation has been going for a while. 
And more and more economists are starting to kind of flip their decisions. It used to be pretty overwhelming that, no, this is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. You're starting to see more and more think, well, I think there is a case to be said here for why we need to raise the minimum wage and how it would affect our working class. So I think we just got to sit tight, keep seeing how this rolls out, and we're probably going to do another segment on this if anything becomes concrete. Yeah, well, we'll have to uh, continue to follow this one. Yeah, as it's uh, as it's a big one for business. It's a it big sure one is. for companies. It sure is. Um, Daniel, let's jump ahead and uh, let's hit some of the headlines for today uh, with the shortlist. It's with our uh, digital editor Jeffrey Short. He's going to cover a couple of stories for us here on Market Scale. He's going to look at that Fed rate cut as well as a couple of other stories. So here's the shortlist with Jeffrey Short. Hi, everybody. This is Jeffrey Short with your B two B shortlist. The Federal Reserve cut interest rates by a quarter percentage point on Wednesday, its first reduction in 11 years. However, this is no indication on the state of the U.S. economy. Here's how Whittier Trust CIO Sandeep Bhagat broke down the news in an interview with Yahoo Finance. Uh, Now, this is not because the U.S. is weakening to the point where the beginning of an easing cycle is justified. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The U.S. economy is quite healthy. It's just that the rest of the world is not, and global trade tensions still persist. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said the central bank did not see the move as the beginning of a long series of rate cuts, but also did not rule it out. There is plenty of interest in the meat alternative market recently, and Burger King is set to capitalize on it. BK's parent company, Restaurant Brands International, said Thursday it has reached an agreement with Impossible Foods to begin selling plant-based Impossible Whoppers starting August 8th. Burger King is the largest restaurant chain to roll out a meat alternative on its menu in the United States. And here's what McDonald's CEO Steve Easterbrook told CNBC in May about the complications behind such an addition. Yeah, Just un- in preparation. Undoubtedly does, because you've got to obviously segregate the tools you use and the grills from, from beef products, because some people you know, clearly are purchasing it because they, they are not beef eaters. So, so we know there's complexity. The question is, will the demand make it worth absorbing the complexity because it will drive the business? Burger King is still undecided whether this move will be permanent or not. While the Impossible Burger may only cost a few bucks, Snap AV just spent approximately $680 million to acquire Control 4. The latter is a provider of automation and network systems for homes and businesses that allow users to control lighting, sound, security, communications, and more. Snap AV CEO John Heyman had this to say about the thinking behind the merger. The industry has evolved. The connected home and the smart home has become so much more than just audiovisual. We are looking to create a new brand for the industry that reflects our dedication to not just AV and not just control. The, the announcement signals a further push of AV applications into the smart home space. That's the B2B shortlist for this week. I'm MarketScale Digital Editor Jeffrey Short. That AV merger story is pretty crazy. I love seeing when the AV industry gets ahead on some of these larger trends. The fact that they're absorbing a company that focuses 
exclusively on automation just goes to show that AV is not singled out to just digital displays. Um, the AV industry is breaking into more creative places. Absolutely. It's breaking into um, more practical home and office solutions uh, that you know probably link their digital displays to a larger network, a larger internet of things. It's cool to see. Uh, what a cool merger. Hopefully it uh, turns into some cool products. Absolutely. Well, that was our chief digital editor, Jeffrey Short, with the shortlist for this week. But now on the line, we have John Carippo, the chief learning officer at Q. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, good morning. You know, we're super excited to get your thoughts on a specific story here. I found a study by Burnmouth University Center for Excellence in Media Practice. And basically what they said is media studies and digital literacy should be a standardized pillar of education to combat fake news and disinformation. Uh, now, let's just start with your thoughts on that. Do you think that is an accurate and founded conclusion? I think it's a, I think it's a conclusion you cannot ignore. How's that? Uh, yeah. If you've heard of Sagata Mitra, the famous uh, Indian educational researcher, he he gives he gives us he gives us three rules for uh, the future of learning, and the first one is reading comprehension. The second one is the search skills, but the third one is to protect yourself from dogma. And uh, he said we're going to be under assault from screens and screens and screens all over the place, and they're all going to be trying to convince us something. So I think it's really important to have an electorate that is able to sort through that. So I, I think this is a, it's a really important aspect to education. Yeah. And the main reason we wanted to get your thoughts on this is because, you know, though this is, I think, an exciting step for uh, the student and standardizing, hopefully, um, uh, an awareness of what it's like to consume media online. Um, I think the more B2B conversation is how do you build a curriculum around this? How do you actually structure something that's effective, that teachers can master, and that can be implemented in the classroom in a way where you can tangibly measure growth? Um, yeah, that's really the main point we wanted to break down here. So what are your thoughts on that? How would you go about building a curriculum that focuses on digital literacy and media studies in the classroom? Well, the big thing I would tell teachers, first of all, is you don't have to stop doing anything and you don't have to add anything. It's really just a matter of changing the mix a little bit. For example, uh, we've already been teaching uh, fact and opinion and we've already been teaching um, considering the audience and we've already been uh, teaching things like that in, in essay writing for years. The, the shift is just simply working the media into the conversation. And I'll give you a quick example. Um, based on a lesson in our book, Edu Protocols, um, we have a, a lesson called a cyber sandwich. And one of the things I have adult leaders do when they're learning how to do these protocols is they do a cyber sandwich. I'll explain that in a second, but I, I just tasty. grabbed an article off the <laughs> internet. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I just, I just grabbed an article that I found off the internet. Uh, here's an example. Uh, it turns out that you do not need to eat breakfast. And we all know the phrase, part of a balanced breakfast. That phrase was developed by a group that are called cereal companies to convince us that we needed to eat their food. <laughs> and uh, the scientists went through and did a study and they said, guess what? You don't have to eat breakfast. Some people prefer it, but your body doesn't have a bias towards or against breakfast. And that research came out in the 50s 
and uh, it was paid for by cereal companies. So this article is really fun for people to read because the folks that do not like breakfast feel vindicated. They're like, oh my God, yeah, this is true. I don't, all I need is a cup of coffee and I'm gone or some tea. <laughs> and so it's a great lesson on implicit bias, but we're also teaching kids about, um, you know, different perspectives on, on what we, you would call facts. Uh, there's also a neat table in there that shows that most breakfast foods actually have more sugar in them than uh, uh, desserts. So, you know, if you wanted to have cheesecake for breakfast, you might actually be doing better nutritionally than having cereal because uh, some things are just packed full of sugar. Uh, the classic breakfast muffin is a great example. So I think that's a really good example of how an English teacher can use just a slightly different article that's based on the Internet and, and do, uh, give our kids a huge um, favor by teaching them how to sort out what is fact and opinion? Uh, I've been using uh, YouTube to teach reading comprehension for, uh, shoot, over a decade now. You take TV commercials and you have kids analyze irony in the commercial. You have them talk about foreshadowing in the commercial. You have them talk about um, characterization and types of conflict, all based on a 30-second commercial. I'm rapidly raising kids' reading comprehension hmm. uh, because we have to read it. We don't have to read for three weeks to talk about character. We can use flow from Progressive or the Geico Caveman <laughs> to think about conflict. And I'm going to tell you how effective this is. Every year after I've been doing this lesson for a couple of weeks, I have parents call me and say, you know what, movie night, my kid used to just sit on the couch and watch, and now they're explaining all the stereotypes and cliches to me. You have <laughs> ruined movie night. <laughs> oh, I love and that. And I tell them, I I will take that with your Teacher of the Year award and <laughs> have a great summer. <laughs> John, one so last... I, I think it's a, Sorry, it really is a great question. It's a really great question that you're asking. One last question, uh, real quick. Just uh, from, from your perspective, as someone that's been in the classroom for over 20 years, do you think that we need to be teaching more life lessons like finance, you know, taxes, and things like that in the classroom these days um, and maybe adjust, <laughs> adjust our curriculum a little bit? All you have to do is look around a little bit, and, and the answer is yes. Okay, we have an electorate that doesn't understand why you should vote. We have people that are over-mortgaged on their houses. We have people that are buying stuff on Visa cards that they can't pay for. Mm. And and I don't even think it's a fair question, should we be asking things? And then, you know, the last piece of that is uh, we talk about academics, and we talk about all these things, but if you don't have people that are healthy emotionally and, and economically, you're not going to have a. You're not going to have the best experience as a country. So I think that we we've, we've left those behind a little bit in in the pursuit of reading and math scores. And it turns out reading and math scores don't predict very much, except for more high reading and math scores. So I think we need to build better rounded people than that. Absolutely. Well, John Cribble, thank you so much, the Chief Learning Officer from Q. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Business Casual here by Market Scale. Hey, thanks for inviting me. It was great fun. All right, we'll do it again soon. That is John Carippo. Thank you so much to John for joining us this morning. Coming up, we have a story here, Daniel. Yeah. About esports. Oh, baby. Now, people like to ask the question is esports a real sport? But earlier this week, a 16 year old won $3 million oh. playing a Fortnite tournament. Oh. $3 million, Daniel. How? So, my question is. If you can make millions of dollars playing it, they played it in the same tennis stadium that they play the U.S. Open in. 
the Arthur Ashe Arena. So they, they played this $3 million. They played it in the same place as you play a tennis tournament. Is there any question whether or not it's a real sport at this point? I mean... And by the way, who's making these definitions? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it just goes back to the philosophy of... Oh, I can't believe anyone would sit and watch someone play video games. But everyone's classic response to that is, well, what do you mean? Why don't you go grab the pig skin and throw it yourself then? Why are you sitting <laughs> watching Tom Brady, you know, try to win his millionth championship? It's, it just is a failed question, I think, at this point. I think there's really no other way to put it than esports are a sport, and now it's just... To what degree are they going to become part of the mainstream? Absolutely. The, the champion, his name is Kyle Gearsdorf. Uh, they call him Booga, I believe, on Booga, uh, Booga. online. But he won more than what tennis champion Novak Djokovic took home from winning Wimbledon two weeks ago and more than what Tiger Woods won from winning this past year's Masters tournament. Which is kind of insane. It's absolutely insane. Sunday's solo final also netted more than 2 million concurrent viewers on Twitch and YouTube. Which is pretty insane. Now, last year, Fortnite, uh, the video game, generated $2.4 billion in revenue. And here's an interesting story. Uh, Twitch, the online streaming platform, uh, has been, uh, I think, kind of at the center of esports' rise to prominence. Mm -hmm. And one of the most prominent people with that is a gamer called Ninja. Now, Ninja made a big announcement this week that he was actually going to switch his streaming platform and just exclusively broadcast his gaming on Mixer. So hmm. he's been broadcasting on Twitch, and on Twitch he actually had the most followers of anybody, 14,717,135 followers at his peak. Yeah. Um, but he announced uh, Wednesday that he was going to switch and broadcast exclusively on Mixer, which is owned by Microsoft. Now, he released a video to make this announcement, and I have part of that video, if I turn off the music, <laughs> right about... Though, you know, I do want to hear beats I do every like now and beats. then. Here's Ninja's video. I know this may come as a shock to many of you, but as of today, I will be streaming exclusively on Mixer. I know, I know, it's exciting. Such exasperation. I know, I know. It's, 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 it's a very well-produced video, and it's a lot of fun. But the big thing about this is that there's a lot of money in this, and this is a company in Microsoft that went and signed this kid, basically, that's, yeah. a, that's a really, really good gamer, obviously 14 million followers, <laughs> yeah. uh, that watch him play video games. That might sound insane to you, but it, we're at a point now, Daniel, where I think if you're a person that's sitting there saying, oh, it's just video games you're missing out on the big money that's being thrown around in this area. Yeah, and I think there's two main perspectives to take away from this. The first is the impact that an influencer can have on your business, positively or negatively. Right. Since we're seeing so much, um, so much of a change in marketing that's putting an emphasis on the individual to help really drive that marketing, what happens when that individual becomes one of your main money makers and then they leave. That is a real gamble that you're putting on one person. And now those 14 million people, I don't think they're going to leave Twitch, but they sure as heck aren't going to be tuning in quite as regularly, uh, you know, to watch their favorite streamer. Now that's probably going to hit Twitch pretty hard. Mixer uh, has already climbed all the way to the top of free app charts. Yeah. So that has shot Mixer to the top from relative anonymity. Exactly. So it's interesting to see how one person can have such a sway over the market like this. Absolutely. Um, now, the other side of it is sponsorships. 
how much money do you actually get as a company from these sponsorships? Now, there's not really a lot of data around this for esports yet, but at least around sports or traditional sports, in 2018, companies were set to spend a collective $65 billion on this, even though the majority of them only, well, actually, yeah, the majority of them don't feel like they can measure ROI on this. Only 19% of sponsorship professionals felt they could measure any sort of return on investment from this. So it seems to be like a standard to sponsor people, but it's not like you see a direct flow of cash from sponsoring famous players. Um, I think most of it comes down to social media exposure, comes down to brand awareness and brand recognition, which is why people do it. I mean, you know, if you see yeah. if you see someone with Qatar Airlines on the front of their jersey, like now you know what Qatar Airlines is. I sure. would have never known Qatar had their own airline. So, um, <laughs> I thank soccer for that. Yeah, exactly. Now, I think what's cool about esports is that they're driven by an online presence mm-hmm. specifically, so being online could potentially drive people to sales pages and to websites more frequently, which could give uh, sponsorship more of a reason for existing in esports than in even traditional sports, because it's not just a banner on a person's shirt. Instead, it's a linked advertisement or it's a linked sponsorship that could drive people from Mixer, from Twitch to Dollar Shave Club or sure. to, you know, Udemy or whatever whatever person is sponsoring whatever. Absolutely. K-Swiss came out with their own brand and their own like specialty shoe for esports players. I don't know what that would be like. <laughs> Uh, and again, I'm not I'm not trying to hate on esports. I'm trying to make an argument that it is very much a sport and it is very much a force in the world of business. But K-Swiss did make a slip-on sneaker that features lightweight, flexible material with an elasticated closure for a snug fit, as well as a venting unit to make it breathable in warmer climates and a wool-lined insole that can be inserted to make the shoes feel warmer. Wow. That sounds like a great shoe. It sounds like a great shoe. Great for industrial air conditioning, (laughs) where you're probably going to be playing your your eSports. Now, you know, it's crazy that they're going more in the swag route than in the, like, sponsored, uh, let's say, keyboards or mice or, you know, at headphones maybe. I mean, I'm sure there are sponsorships there, but... K-Swiss sticking with what they do best. Yeah, it's it's cool seeing uh, it's cool seeing esports also adapt the kind of swag associated sponsorships mm. that you often see in traditional sports. So all that to say, keep an eye out for esports. It's getting big. It's getting big. Daniel, any final thoughts before we close out for today's episode of Business Casual? You know, not really. Um, we have so much to unpack on this show that we're just gonna have to start doing it more often. So everyone out there, if you're enjoying Business Casual, stay tuned because sooner than later, we're going to try to do this more than just Friday. For now, just tune in Fridays 8 a.m. Central because we're going to bring you the hottest in B2B, the most interesting in B2B, and the most controversial in B2B, all while keeping it casual. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Business Casual. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin. I'm your other host, Tyler Kern. And we'll see you next week at 8 a.m. Central.